This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, September 8th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. That strange oxymoron, libertarian paternalism, aims to nudge us in the right direction, to take actions that might generally be accepted as beneficial to us as individuals, but are nonetheless not chosen as often as some people might like. But drawing that all-important line between libertarian paternalism and plain old-fashioned coercive paternalism, Ilya Soman, an assistant professor of law at George Mason University and a Cato Institute adjunct scholar, offers his thoughts. Well, traditional paternalism uh, simply says you don't necessarily know what's best for you. And so the government or some other outside entity is going to tell you, you can't do this even if you want to. For instance, you can't smoke or you can't drink or any number of other things. Now, some scholars, most of whom are not themselves libertarians, have recently developed this notion of libertarian paternalism where instead of saying you can't do this at all uh, or you're completely forbidden – or completely forbidden to do it, uh, we're just saying uh, we're going to set a different default rule. Uh, so, for instance, uh, if we think one kind of pension plan is generally better than others, uh, what we'll do is we'll automatically presume that you want to enroll in the better one unless you yourself act affirmatively uh, to change it. Uh, or similarly, uh, they might impose a waiting period before buying, say, a gun uh, to make sure that you've thought carefully that about the fact that you really do want to buy one and you're not just buying one out of frustration or you know, on a whim or something like that and might endanger yourself un- unnecessarily. Uh, and so the idea, they say, is they're not closing off choices, rather they're creating default rules. Uh, and, the, and similarly, uh, they would also say that uh, they're not trying to impose their values on other people like traditional paternalists do, rather they're trying to make it easier for you to realize your own values by eliminating the impact of your cognitive biases so that you'll, you won't do things that later you'll regret in terms of your own values. I think you and I probably have a, a similar problem with a, a distinction that uh, libertarian paternalists draw. For example, when you ban trans fats from restaurants, you're not taking away my ability to cook with trans fats. You're just taking away a default rule, I suppose, for one option that I've got. I guess the pro- problem that I have is that what is the difference between uh, changing a default rule and taking away what is clearly understood to be the worst possible option in terms of a, a choice that I could make in some arena? Yeah, well, I, I think it's a good question. It is true that the distinction between libertarian paternalism and traditional paternalism is much fuzzier than people at first claim. For instance, if you impose a waiting period on somebody, that does actually take a choice away. It means for, if there's a 30-day waiting period before buying a gun, that means that you can't buy it within 30 days. And you know, if you really need it immediately for protection, say you're a woman who's being pursued by a stalker, for example, those 30 days could be extremely important. Uh, and the same might go uh, in other instances, even if it's purely a default rule in that uh, we enroll you in one plan until you say you want to be in the other one, still that imposes on you uh, the, the, the necessity of actually going there and taking affirmative action to uh, sign up for the other plan, which in some cases might be costly or annoying. So I think it is true that 
libertarian paternalism and the policies uh, its advocates prefer, they're less intrusive and less harsh in many ways than some of the traditional paternalist policies, uh, but they do still have, many of them at least, this coercive element where some choices are being taken away and not just uh, you know, altered by default rules. Uh, so, so, so there is sort of a fuzziness, even more to the point, even if there is a conceptual distinction between the two, uh, once the government began, gets in the business of engaging libertarian paternalistic policies, it may be easy for it to transition into the more traditional ones in that, for instance, uh, if you say, well, we're going to impose a waiting period to prevent gun accidents and the rate of gun accidents remains the same after a waiting period, uh, then it would be very easy to say, well, this approach was too soft to actually eliminate the accident, so we need to have a harsher policy of simply forbidding certain categories of people to buy guns. Uh, and the same could be said for trans fats and for you know all sorts of other uh, seemingly risky activities. And it's hard for me to to see how uh, markets don't perform many of the same functions that libertarian paternalists would view uh, a, a state uh, taking. That is. For example, when purchasing an MP3 player, there is one MP3 player that has a market share that is absolutely dominant, and other players who were once in that market have lost market share through the decisions of, of early adopters in the uh, market for MP3 players. Yeah, and I think that's true that uh, the market does offer people options for controlling their own cognitive biases. Uh, for instance, one of the biases that these experts talk about is you, people don't save enough. Well, there's all sorts of bank accounts that you can get where there's automatic deposit where you can tie your own hands so that it's just hard for you to withdraw money, at least in a certain period of time. Uh, similarly, you can consult with experts on cars or on MP3 players uh, about what's the best way of going about finding the right one. Uh, and finally, if you really think you're screwed up, well, you can go to a therapist or you can go to some other kind of expert in psychology who can help you with your particular problems. Uh, I think the libertarian paternalists are right that in some instances, in many instances, we may need expert assistance to help us make decisions. The question is uh, whether these are going to be experts that are appointed by the government uh, and are not under the consumer's control or whether these are going to be experts that you yourself choose in a market. And moreover, uh, I think there's a difference between an expert that I hire and therefore can fire if I think he's not doing a good job and an expert that's imposed by the state uh, or any other outside entity coercively on me such that even if he performs poorly or even if he pursues his own interests at the expense of my interest, uh, I can't fire him easily. Uh, and so... It's absolutely true. We make mistakes all the time, and sometimes we need expert assistance. Uh, but the question is, who's going to hire the experts? And also, the question is whether we have the last word or whether those those experts will. And also, these default rules, no matter how uh, non-coercive we may view them to be, there's no chance that most of those would not themselves become political footballs. Uh, it probably varies from case to case, but certainly I think in many instances they will become political footballs. And uh, once you 
create default rules, say for insurance plans, well, insurance companies are going to start to lo- are going to start to lobby about that, right? So you're very likely to get a default plan, which is not necessarily the best for consumers, but which is simply the one that the most politically powerful group of insurance companies were able to get the legislators to pass. I think that gets us to another important aspect of this, which is uh, when you look at people's cognitive biases, you have to ask yourself, well, will those biases be worse in markets uh, or in in voting? Uh, And in voting, I think there's a good chance that it will usually be worse uh, because when you vote, you have much less incentive to try to control your biases than when you make a decision in the market. Uh, When you make a decision in the market, say you buy an MP3 player in your example, your individual decision is decisive and your own money is at stake. Uh, So you have at least some incentive to try to be rational about it, to not waste your money. Uh, On the other hand, when you're in the voting booth, in most elections, there's a one in one million or one in 10 million chance that your vote will be decisive. So how much effort is it rational for you to make to control your biases? Probably very little. Uh, And moreover, much of the cost of your decisions in a voting booth, if you make a bad one, uh, will be borne by the rest of society, not by you, right? So like, for instance, if a bad regulation is passed or a bad government program created, you will probably bear only a small portion of that cost. Uh, And so there's tremendous incentives uh, to not learn very much about what's going on in politics. Uh, Scholars call this rational ignorance. Uh, Similarly, even if you do know something about what's going on, there's a lot of incentive not to try very hard to control your cognitive biases. And indeed, we know uh, from studies of the way people process political information that they're highly irrational about it. For instance, they tend to discount any information which goes against their preferred party or their candidate uh, and to overvalue any information that reinforces their existing prejudices. So if you're a Republican, anything that makes Republicans look bad, you'll tend to discount. If you're a, and anything that makes them look good, you'll tend to overvalue their information. And there are numerous other cognitive biases that we know exist in the way people process political information. Uh, so I think the key point here is not that consumers are completely rational and never fall prey to bias. Clearly, they make mistakes all the time. It's rather that uh, voters tend to be even worse than consumers are in this respect. Uh, And so to say, because consumers have cognitive biases, we need to expand the role of voting in government, uh, that may simply exacerbate whatever biases exist uh, rather than improve the situation. Ilya Solman is an assistant professor of law at George Mason University and an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. You can read more on paternalism, libertarian and otherwise, at cato.org.